Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, your home for learning ways to attract more traffic to your website, generate more leads, convert more leads into customers, and build stronger relationships with your customers. And now, your hosts, Justin Johnson and Ken Franzen. Hey, hey, Neon Noise Nation. Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, where we decode marketing and sales topics to help grow your business. I am Justin Johnson, and with me, I have my co-host, Mr. Ken Franzen. Ken, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic, Justin, and excited to talk to our guest today because uh, he's going to cover a topic here that uh, we haven't really touched on much, and it's one I've really wanted to dive into. Um, I'm going to leave a little suspense there for when we dive get get going here, but uh, I'm excited for today's conversation. Absolutely. Today we will be speaking with David Harlow. He is a seasoned healthcare attorney and consultant recognized as an accomplished, innovative, and resourceful thought leader in healthcare law, strategy, and policy. His experience in both public and private sectors over the past 25 years affords him a unique perspective on legal, policy, and business issues facing the healthcare community. Healthcare organizations, including providers and vendors of all shapes and sizes, rely on him to help navigate the maze of business issues facing them on a daily basis. Without further ado, David, welcome to Neon Noise. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Absolutely. Do me a favor and fill in the blanks on anything I may have missed and share with us a little bit of detail about your background. Sure. Well, uh, I am a, a recovering real estate lawyer. I practiced as a real estate lawyer briefly early in my career. And uh, for virtually my entire career, I have been a healthcare lawyer, uh, in, in a sense, uh, focusing on, on the healthcare that takes place inside certain buildings. And more recently, over the past 10 years or so, as healthcare has moved online, so have I. And my practice is now uh, almost entirely focused on digital privacy and security issues primarily in the realm of healthcare services. Very interesting. David, digital security, it's such an interesting topic. I mean, recently we had the big Equifax breach and uh, that uh, debacle as far as the way that it was handled and uh, how much information was uh, released or not released, but, but was vulnerable. And, can we just touch real quick on um, really some of the better ways that a business can go about in reference that particular instance and or any others that you could think of um, where either they did a great job or perhaps they could have done things differently? Sure. So the uh, Equifax debacle is a, is a great example of how uh, little things can get away from you and cause a major disaster quite frankly. As I understand it on the technical side, there was a patch that had been issued for one of the technologies that they used, and they had not applied the patch, and that's what caused, that. that's what created the vulnerability that was exploited and led to this monumental breach. So, first order of business is, if one of your vendors sends you an update about a patch, do your testing, do whatever testing you need to do offline, but then bring it into your live environment as soon as you can. Failure to do that can lead to an exploit. Not everybody is going to suffer an exploit on the scale that Equifax did, but even if it's a smaller scale, 
breach, it's going to uh, affect you in kind. Um, it, it's very important to, to stay abreast of these things. Often smaller organizations say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to deal with this sort of constant updating. But the, the, co the cost of not doing so is just unbelievable, as we can see in this example. Also with uh, smaller examples as well, there can be uh, breaches, there can be things that happen on a smaller scale that also could easily be avoided. Um, in, in the healthcare realm, there's a steady stream of breaches, breach notifications, everything from electronic to paper. There are cases of people leaving paper records in places where they shouldn't be left. And that's as much of a breach as a digital breach is. Uh, even though we're, we're focused now mostly on the digital breaches because they can be more wide, greater in scale, there's still this uh, sense that we need to keep track of paper breaches as well. Everything from uh, confidential information being left in a folder on public transportation to being left in a town dump and uh, being easily accessed because it hasn't been shredded, etc. cetera. Uh, but often we hear about breaches where somebody's laptop has been stolen out of the back of a rental car on a business trip and the hard disk wasn't encrypted. So that's a super easy step that businesses can take and not taking that step, encrypting the hard drive uh, is, is really just um, uh, malpractice, so to speak, negligence. Uh, if, if you don't encrypt data, if you don't use the technical tools at your disposal to do the best job that you can, then unfortunately in this day and age, you have a lot of liability coming. Well, let's jump into that for a second, because you think about, um, and, and, and you're an attorney, so you, you did no one better to answer this question, but you, as a business owner, you have a due diligence. If you're going to collect customer data and store it in any capacity or, or, or even just collect it and, and have that passed through your hands, not even store it, you do have to perform your due diligence in the handling and either storage or um, the termination of that, that secure information. What are some of the best practices or what, let's start first. What are the major vulnerabilities? You gave a great example of a laptop getting stolen from a rental car for someone on a business trip, but what are the other, you know, windows that are left open that even though you have a security system and, uh, you, everyone knows how to lock the door and close the windows. If you leave the door unlocked or the window open or you don't arm the security system, your house can easily be broken into. Right. And the number of steps we have to take these days just keeps increasing exponentially. Things are getting more and more complicated. There are more and more things that we need to keep track of. And this causes problems for people, like in the, in the laptop example. Um, I think the, the biggest issue in any organization is what I call generically human factors, right? We can lock down things from a technical perspective, but there's al always somebody who will 
click on the stupid phishing email and thereby give the keys to the kingdom away. There's always somebody who will download an application on a computer and install it, not realizing that it's just a way for someone to log their keystrokes and steal all their passwords, etc. So there's a lot of education that has to be done and constant education and re-education because these exploits become more and more sophisticated over time. Uh, I'm constantly telling people about exploits that I hear about and warning them not to do certain things or to take care in certain ways. And the answer that I often get is, well, how can, how can I tell? How do you know that that email is a phishing email? Um, and, and there's a whole variety of things that you need to look at. Some of it is sort of a, uh, a sense uh, developed over time. And it's important for individual organizations and, 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 and users of online services, social media, others, to just be uh, aware of what, it, what looks right, what looks bad um, and be always uh, vigilant and skeptical. So human factors. In a, in a broader sense, there's at least three layers of protection that need to be in place uh, from some regulatory perspectives that incorporate best practices from a technical perspective. We can divide this up into three areas administrative, technical, and physical controls. Starting with physical, you mentioned the idea of you know locking the doors and arming the alarms. Those are the physical controls. If you've locked everything down physically and nobody can get into the space where you have stored the unencrypted data, whether it's the backseat of a car or the desktop in an office, then you've done a pretty good job on the physical front. So you've addressed the physical security. If you don't let somebody pass the front desk in your office space unless they sign in and show ID, that you've addressed some of your physical security with, number two, an administrative protection. So you've added an administrative layer to the protection. So nobody gets into the back room unless they've signed in and identified themselves so we know who they are. Technical protections would include things like encryption, would include things like two-factor authentication if somebody's logging into a resource online. Two-factor authentication means you don't just get to log in with a password. We've all experienced this on consumer-facing websites these days where not only do you need to know your password and some answer to some security question that you may or may not remember because you gave an answer <laughs> two years ago, um, but you also need something that you have. So it's something you know and something you have. And the something you have now is pretty universally a cell phone. So when a website texts you a code to your cell phone that you then have to enter into the website, that's using two-factor authentication. So the something you know is the password or the answer to the secret question. 
and the something you have is your cell phone. So that's that's good, but not great. There are uh, ways to exploit that. People can clone cell phone numbers, get text messages directed, misdirected. So better, but not perfect. Okay. So with that, though, those, that, those, those three components there, um, what, what is the weakest? Would it be the physical? So the physical is one weak link. But again, as I just mentioned, if, if, since people are today able to spoof a cell phone number and uh, therefore have uh, calls redirected to them, you know, technical, technically savvy folk who are uh, motivated in that direction can do something like that. Uh, that that's a concern. So you can steal uh, a text message. You can you can hack into uh, somebody's computer remotely if you get them to download something through a phishing email, and then you can track their messages and um, get those private uh, texts that we otherwise assume are secure, and then and then e exploit them. So. In the worst case scenario, some of us would say that, look, in, t in this day and age, nothing is secure, nothing is private. And we need to, we need to think about that for a moment and think about whether uh, we need to retreat in a certain way, whether it's even possible to do so, or whether we need to live with the expectation that we need to be constantly vigilant because there's always the possibility that the next message you get is going to be a spoofed message, or the or that um, somebody is going to hack into your personal health record online, or your credit card, and make use of that information in some way. So we need to be constantly vigilant, not only to prevent breaches, but also to mitigate the damage once they happen, because they will happen. I think it's an important point when you say they will happen because we hear these news stories about Equifax or, or these larger instances where, you know, whatever database that was, was uh, compromised. And as a small business owner, we think, well, that's a likely target because there's millions and millions and millions of pieces of data, but who would target me? I'm just a local plumber with, you know, a couple hundred clients and, uh, you know, I'm doing a couple million dollars in, in sales each year, but they should be equally as concerned and follow very similar protocol as, as a large organization or does it different? The, the risk is the same, but obviously on a, on a smaller scale. So if I were, if I had a limited number of hours in my day and I'm a black hat hacker, I'm going to spend more hours uh, trying to get into the Equifax website than I am getting into the local plumber's website. Because once I get in, the payoff is greater. That said, sure. if I have access to a hundred or a thousand records that have uh, name, address, uh, credit card number, et cetera, et cetera, that's worth something. And I can try to use those credit card numbers or sell them on the dark web and they have a certain value uh uh so i can i can sell them by the by the hundred or by the thousand and that's worth something 
So everybody's a target is the, is the bottom line. But it makes sense to scale your responses based on your size and what kind of information you have. Someone like an Equifax has to be held to the highest standard. They have social security numbers. They have banking information. They have uh, all the answers to those secret questions that we use for password double checks on other websites, right? Um, so so that's they need to be held to a higher standard. They should be, and they are. Uh, in the healthcare realm and in the broader realm, the broader realm is regulated at this point on a national level by the Federal Trade Commission. So a uh, poor privacy and security practices conducted by a business are considered an unfair business practice. And that brings it within the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission. So if it's a, if it's a big case, if it's a national case, the Federal Trade Commission can get involved. And if it is a small case, if it's a local case, um, state regulators or a state attorney general's office could get involved and say, you've, you've breached somebody's privacy because of your sloppiness. You've, that's an unfair business practice. You, the plumbing contractor. And because of what you've done, mm -hmm. we're going to fine you. We're going to uh, uh, put in place a, 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 a compliance program. You need to hire someone to oversee the privacy and security of your customer data over the next five years. Make sure you do everything right because you weren't able to do it right before. And uh, they'll have to report to us. And if you fall off the wagon, you're going to get whacked again, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of after-the-fact enforcement tools that are available to law enforcement. Um, my goal is to help people not fall down that rabbit hole in the first place. Uh, prevention is the best medicine. I like to say I practice preventive law. And... Uh, uh, try to help folks put appropriate data privacy and security programs in place in advance so that you never have to deal with that eventuality. So the, the anti-attorney approach, right? The, uh, to, to get them, keep them out of trouble so that, uh, they don't have to, uh, to, to go down that, uh, rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about that maybe for a quick second. What are some of the things that you work with uh, businesses, organizations on to prevent? Because I look at this and I say, okay, great. Um, this sounds like a very reactive type situation where uh, you hear about another business and in, in your uh, local business. I'm thinking, bring this down to local level saying, okay, great. Um, you know, Frank the plumber, he was didn't follow the proper protocol, didn't have systems established and uh, was careless, was compromised. And now he is getting more than his wrist slapped and is really putting the hurt on him. And you think of that's top of mind um, as a business owner. And then you, you have that, that conversation with yourself. Like you said, what are my resources? What are my uh, exposure? And you conclude that I probably should do this, but I, I, eventually don't or it doesn't become top of mind it becomes back of mind and on you go 
what are some of the things that you do and how do you work with business organizations in helping them with this? Sure. So uh, again, prevention is the best medicine. So, so what does that mean? We need to start with looking at what kind of data do you use? Do you really need to be using all of that data? Maybe there's stuff you could do without and thereby reduce your risk. So the first step is a, a, a broad-based sort of risk assessment. And as part of that, and sort of an inventory, what are all the kinds of data that you use? Where do you store them? How do you use them? Why do you use them? Uh, uh, who within your organization has access to the data? Do they really need access to everything? Why does everybody who logs on to your internal network have access to absolutely everything? Not everybody needs access to full identification, full credit card numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there should be role-based access to limited amounts of information. Uh, then you need to put in place, uh, as you can start to see, what what kind of information there is, what are the kinds of uses uh, that are in place. You need to put in place appropriate policies and procedures internally in order to manage the privacy and security of data that you're handling. Because if you, if you don't have a, a rule book that you can refer to, nobody's going to know what you need to do. doesn't matter if it's a two-person office or a 10,000-person organization. You need a basic uh, guideline to understand what, what you need to be doing and how you as an organization address the three general categories that I mentioned earlier, sort of the, the uh, physical, uh, technical, and administrative protections of data in order to make sure that, they, that it's not misused, abused, or, 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 or breached. You have to be conscious of federal laws, the Federal Trade Commission, in healthcare, there's the HIPAA rules, in every state, there's your state attorney general that enforces these things. There's uh, local state laws that are different from state to state uh, in the privacy realm. And you need to be able to demonstrate that you're complying with those things. So just as an example, that in, in, in my state, Massachusetts, there's a privacy law that applies to all businesses, not just healthcare, And you need to have a plan in place. And there are very specific elements of the plan that detail how you deal with certain kinds of information. If you're brought under the under this law because you hold certain kinds of information, then you need to have this kind of plan in place. You need to have the certain protections in place. I always tell clients you should also buy cyber liability insurance so that one, one bad event doesn't destroy your business because the costs for responding to an incident, depending on the size, it's not going to be a million-dollar event for, for the plumbing contractor. But once you get to any sort of larger size organization, uh, this could be a business-ending event if you have a breach. So you need to have that insurance in place. Okay. Now, when we get to all these policies and procedures in, you know, establishing the, the rules or, or, um, the, the guidelines that need to be followed. 
Um, how much training or how much, cause you have that physical, uh, uh, interaction again, how much training or what's the, what do you, cause if you have employees and let's say you do have these roles properly set up where, uh, only the people that need access to the information have that access to the information. Now you've reduced, let's say you have 20 employees who all 20 had that access. Now it's down to five, the five that actually need the access. Now you, you've reduced your vulnerability points down to five individual walking human error machines, which is what we basically are. We all make mistakes and that's uh, the policies and procedures you're talking about is to minimize or reduce the amount that we make. What takes place there with them in, in instructing them uh, going forward? Um, So first of all, congratulations. You've, you've reduced your exposure by 75%. If you've, if you've taken that first step and reduced access to, five out of 20 uh, employees that's terrific you're 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 ahead of ahead of most people um, but what, what has to happen is uh, role-based training and testing so you need to train people not not given a general overview seminar of privacy and the importance of privacy and security but something that's very relevant to their responsibilities at work and very relevant to the things that they're going to encounter. But today, that includes things like phishing emails, because we're all on email, for better or for worse, and anybody can get a phishing email any hour of any day and click on a link and uh, end up wreaking havoc with their computer system and their company's computer system. Uh, So a lot of education that has to go into this. And um, part of the education that can go on is sending fake phishing emails to your workforce and seeing how they react, right? So you can send an email, you can send a fake email that looks like it's one of those emails from, from uh, chase or one of the other big banks. They say, Oh, we noticed there was a security problem and just enter your, username and password, and we're going to check it out for you. Uh, Some people still fall for that. Uh, But if you set up a fake one and send it to your workforce or something more sophisticated, um, you can, when they, when they do the thing they're not supposed to do, they'll be taken not to some criminals website, but to some web page that you've set up or your contractor has set up that says, Hey, you know, you, you blew it. But here's what you did wrong. Here's what you should have noticed about this email and make it an educational experience, not a punitive experience for the employee. I like that. That's great. Little, uh, little role playing or or real life, because when you know you're being, uh, auditioned or you're on the, the, the clock for lack of better terms, um, that you need to respond with an answer. Uh, that's easy to regurgitate what needs to be said, but when you're not aware and not thinking, um, that's a better way to, to gauge that. What about how, how much does password use of strong passwords? Cause this amazes me still. When I go out visit with clients, we do a lot of, uh, website, uh, design development and uh, with that the platforms we construct the cmss we give them user access and 
a lot of times I'm doing the training, I have them set a password then and there. And WordPress is a one of the platforms we use quite often. And the default WordPress password is long and very, very, very um, abstract, uh, rightfully so. And it's a, it's a quote unquote secure password. And everyone looks and says, oh my gosh, I am not dealing with that password. Can I type in my own? And I'm like, sure. And they type in five keystrokes and I look at them like, it's the name of your dog, right? And they're like, <laughs> yep. And I was like, come on. There's, there's just this, this, uh, scared, you know, people are scared of forgetting their passwords and they make them ridiculously easy. Is, is that still, you know, a major vulnerability point for, for some of these, uh, yes, points of entry, absolutely. I guess. Uh, and the, uh, equally problematic is the approach to password policies that we've been taking, uh, collectively over the past number of years where you need to have an uppercase letter, a lowercase letter, a symbol, a number, and uh, you have to change your password. Your, your system makes you change your password every 30 days or every 90 days. The, the guy who came up with that policy recently said publicly, I, I just made that up. It wasn't based on anything. And as it turns out, it was wrong. And the NIST, the government <laughs> agency that actually publishes technical recommendations and standards around things like this has withdrawn their guidance that was based on what this researcher had said, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. Um, and this has long been mocked. There's this, uh, technical, technical, um, comic strip online called, uh, XKCD. People have probably seen this and they came up with, uh, the, the, the artist, the author of this strip came up with an idea that, uh, you know, it'd be much better to have a collection of four random common words than something that has a capital and a number and an exclamation point and something else. Because you're going to forget it. You're going to have to reset it. It's going to be problematic. Just come up with a couple of uh, 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 words. So I think the phrase that he came up with was um, correct horse battery staple and it's that's a bunch of characters okay. and it's going to be hard for somebody else to come up with and sure once you come up with some weird way of remembering that you're going to remember it and it's it's uh it's pretty secure even the password tools that um generate auto generate a complex password for every website that you use and then you just have to log into that one service and it automatically logs you into everything and you don't have to remember your passwords you have to remember a password for that one site and if somebody hacks that password then you're doomed because all of your passwords for all of your financial websites work websites everything else are, are all exposed by breaching a single password so would you suggest not using something like LastPass? Well, I think I think it has good points and bad points, right? I mean, on the one hand, each individual site that you use it for is probably better protected than it would be otherwise. However, if somebody breaches your LastPass account, then, like I said, you're, you're, you're doomed. Right, they have the skeleton key to every so door. So is LastPass 
Is LastPass doing a better job at security than Equifax was? I don't know. Sure. Now let's touch on the scenario where you've done everything right. You're being preventative. You have the the three components in place uh, that you, you described earlier. You have trained employees. You've reduced as much of the the vulnerabilities as possible. And, you know, I always get the question, you know, can my website be hacked from our clients? And, as, you know, we put all the proper measures in place. But if you have a castle with a moat around it with sharks with laser beams on their heads and all the security measures in place, somebody wants to break in, there's still a possibility that they could get in. So in the event that you've done everything right and you still are compromised, which I'm, does happen. If, if, right. What liabilities do you hold as a business owner then? Excellent question. So uh, there are still losses that that have have occurred. So the the and the question becomes less a question of legal liability, as um, is ev- is anyone ever going to do business with me again? Right. So you need to think about this as a PR exercise as much as a, as a legal exercise. You can say, okay, I wasn't liable, end of story, but that doesn't help the people whose identities were breached. Sure. So, again, that's why it makes sense to have uh, the cyber liability insurance in place that can help cover the cost of the uh, identity theft uh, protection services, um, et cetera, et cetera, the, the credit monitoring services and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> the, real, uh, the real issue there is also if you've done everything that you are supposed to do, you may then get out from under the crosshairs of government investigators. So I've seen this happen. Uh, if there's a there's a breach, but you can document, not only have you done it, but you can document clearly that you've done absolutely everything you're supposed to do, then that's a good thing. And maybe you get a, uh, have a get out of jail free card as a result. That is certainly the case in the healthcare arena where the rules are pretty specific, uh, even though they are "Quote unquote uh, flexible because they uh, they can they're not necessarily they're a one size fit all uh, set of rules which means that they apply differently to large organizations versus small organizations. But the bottom line, you can document what you've done, that you've done what you're supposed to be doing, and the regulators, if they see that you've done what you're supposed to be doing, will not necessarily fine you if if there's just been something bad that's happened." On the broader stage, the Federal Trade Commission famously does not have any actual rules defining what you're supposed to do. It's sort of like the old Supreme Court cases on pornography. I, I, I don't, don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. That was the Supreme Court definition of pornography. Uh, we have the same problem with the Federal Trade Commission when it comes to uh, unfair business practices. We can't tell you what a fair business practice is in advance, but if something is breached, we're surely going to let you know 
if we think that what you've done was an unfair business practice. And the same goes with the state attorney generals and state regulators. That seems unfair in itself because I mean, while you look at uh, things that we should be doing and going back to my, hey, we've done everything right, we've done everything. And, and again, I'm, I'm looking at this from the idea of regulation versus um, public perception, consumer confidence. But if I'm looking at it from a business owner standpoint, stating, okay, I've done the things that were quote unquote defined, but there's so much gray area here that I feel like is left open for interpretation. And is, is that basically what you're saying is that there's a lot of gray area for interpretation and should they def- decide or determine that this does look like pornography, then they can make that judgment in case by case scenario. Right. I mean, the, the federal trade commission operates on a case by case basis. That's just, that's the way they work. Uh, which which, which is nervous making, of course. And so, what was so what's the appropriate reaction to that? Is do everything that you can do that that you feel is appropriate, that your advisors feel is appropriate, and document that you've done it. Sure. And you know, we, we walk that line with, okay, great. You know, how much do we want the government defining everything that because the the, the dynamics of the online. Let's just go stick with the online world right now because. That's where most of the change is happening, um, the advancements in technology, um, the advancements in security measures, but also um, the advancements in technique that uh, these uh, identity thieves are taking or data thieves are taking. Um, they're getting more sophisticated. They have better tools. Their tools are advancing as well. Uh, what type? Uh, how How is the FTC keeping pace with this or how, how do we feel the government's doing with, with at least keeping pace with technology? Um, and then maybe we could touch just quickly on uh, the European Union's uh, GDPR that is going to go in effect. Um, I think it's May of next year. Um, and, you know, that has, that'll have an impact on anyone doing business in Europe, uh, even if you're located here in the States, but to be mindful of, not only what we have here in the United States, but also what others are doing, because it seems like the European Union is taking a little bit more of a definitive approach here, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. So, uh, I mean, just to, to start with, there's a, uh, a need to establish policies and procedures, establish an approach that you're going to be comfortable with, that you're going to be able to execute uh, consistently and, and, and commit to that. Uh, and again, on the Federal Trade Commission level, uh, you may not know until after the fact whether you've done enough, but you can certainly demonstrate that you've done a pretty good job. Uh, at the state level, things are often a little better defined. There are, every state has its own privacy law, or just about every state does. And there's certain things that you can do to comply with those laws that would also show that you're being a good citizen if the FTC comes knocking. Just as, as, uh, as one example, um, uh, California a couple of years ago passed a law that says not that you have to definitely allow a user of your website to 
select a do not track option, but you have to let people know whether you do or not. Okay, so it's sort of a it's a disclosure. Maybe you need to use the tracking because you're using retargeting marketing techniques online and so forth, and that's okay. That's the way we live in today in in this day and age, but you need to tell people that you're doing it. And you need to tell people whether or not they can opt out. Or if they opt out, that means they can't use your website or, the, or your service or whatever it is that you're, that you're selling online. Um, so that allows the consumer to make an informed decision. Now, on the other side, we may say, well, you know, what does that mean? Uh, so you're going to tell me I can't use your website if I don't agree to this technology and you're shutting me out of uh, a, a market, um, it's probably not as bad as all that. You can use another website, but again, it depends on the, the service that you're trying to use and how important it is to use that particular website and, uh, and if they're not letting you um, select a do not track option. But anyway, the, you know, the disclosure element of this is important. Having good policies and procedures that are not only internal facing in terms of how you manage data, but externally facing. So terms of service on a website, privacy policy on a website. Um, now, to be honest, you know, most of us never read those things that are linked to at the bottom of the page. But over time, uh, there's been more of an effort to create plain, you know, plain English versions of those things, or what's called a layered privacy notice. So you can give uh, the equivalent of one page with uh, circles and arrows and a bunch of bullet points and say at a high level, this is our privacy policy. If you want all the legalese, you can you know, click here and, and dig below. But the top layer is a pretty simple and clear statement of what your approach to privacy is. Okay. Now, when we go across the pond, we're dealing with an entirely different approach to privacy. You mentioned the GDPR, the European uh, approach to privacy regulation. It comes from a different place because the, the whole basic idea of privacy comes from a different place in European law versus United States law. So um, it is more comprehensive. It is more overarching. There's much more of a unified, grand unified theory of privacy that starts with the individual and is really a right of privacy than exists here in the U.S. And that's just, that's a matter of historical accident and cultural history and all that good stuff. So it's not an apples and apples comparison. But as, as you note, correctly to the extent that u.s companies are doing business globally they need to deal with the privacy regimes that exist in europe and elsewhere around the world and some in other parts of the world are more like gdpr and some are more like uh, the u.s approach uh, and i have occasion sometimes to work with companies who are serving global businesses and need to be up to snuff on the GDPR and other approaches and uh, uh, help them get into compliance so that they can do business around the world.
world because given given the nature of business today that's what's happening more and more what do you see coming down the future what are you excited about or what what and i'm gonna ask you to do some future telling because i'm thinking of so many different things uh from a security standpoint you know you start you have the new iphone 10 coming out with the and i think the 8 might even have this too with the facial recognition so you don't even really need to have a password it's going to read your face and you access your phone so we have this these advancements in technology that are replacing uh passwords um you know i, I always think the uh the house key is such a the ancient tool for entering your home but uh it still exists today and uh, you think that there would be more advanced ways that we could enter and exit our house and secure it but from not even only a technology standpoint but maybe even just a, an evolution of how we're progressing with data changing um what do you see coming down the future that has you really excited has you concerned um, or uh, that you're you're really mindful of right now? The biometric issues that you mentioned, whether it's facial recognition or something else, or iris scans, or or the uh, you know fingerprint sensors that that are on so many phones and other devices these days. The question is, is that easier or harder to hack than something else? So, Apple's initial release of this facial recognition service on the on the new iPhone claims that it's it's more secure than the fingerprint recognition but I think it remains to be seen I'm sure somebody will try to hack it and we'll see if they're successful or not sure um, but uh, when the first fingerprint sensor phones came out there were you know internet memes uh, photos online showing uh, you know a, a kid holding a phone and taking the dad's uh the sleeping dad's hand off the couch <laughs> and putting the thumb on the phone and unlocking it right so these things can be hacked one way or another uh that's it's only a question of human ingenuity i think sure over time uh maybe we can make it harder make it, make it more difficult the uh the timeouts involved in um unsuccessful attempts uh the the issue that came up uh, in that regard, with uh, with respect to the um, uh, California shooter and the um, unlocking of his iPhone um, over the past year or so. Uh, so, so these things are generally out there, and we need to be aware of the limitations of these security services. We keep getting better. We keep getting more secure. But we need to not stop and rest on our laurels. Things keep getting, uh, uh, people keep hacking the things that we thought were secure yesterday, so to speak. One thing that I've seen in, uh, used in the healthcare context, but can be used in other contexts as well, is sort of another way of using a unique personal identifier, not when we're all sitting at home or out in the field with our laptops or iPhones or whatever, but if we're interacting with a service provider in some way where we need to be authenticated, where we, so the question is, can we use something other than a password? If I go into a bank, if I go into a doctor's office and I'm signing in and I'm about to access a treasure trove of personal data, 
how do I authenticate myself? Well, one way of doing that now is with a hand vein scan. So it sounds kind of futuristic and science fiction-y, but you can put your hand down on a scanner and the, the pattern of veins in your hand is harder to, to spoof than a fingerprint, than maybe than a face scan, something like that. Maybe even harder to spoof than a retina scan, according to some of the manufacturers of these devices. So having the ability to have a face-to-face -face interaction with somebody where they sign in using their hand uh, is potentially much more secure. Interesting. All right. Now, I, and I wonder how many of our listeners are looking at their hands right now because I, I would just check out mine. <laughs> like, oh, I do have veins in there. That's, That's right. Great point. Because think about it. There's, it's not just a question of, you know, what, you know, why do we care about that at a, at a point of sale? It's not just about the transaction you're doing today or, uh, or in the, in the physician office example, right? If you can spoof someone's identity enough to check in, as somebody else, as a, at a, as a patient in a clinic or a hospital, that means you're doing that in order to access somebody else's healthcare insurance benefits, right? There have been cases of people who have bought a medical identity on the dark web and then used it to get double knee replacement surgery. Oh, wow. Because that's expensive. Yes. Right? And then imagine if you're the guy who's cart they used starts getting bills for copays <laughs> and anesthesiologists yeah, and, then, with and then tries to get that information out of their health record right they've been told at least initially oh i can't give you that information because it's private health information about somebody else <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's so awful. again, it's, it's sort of going down the road and thinking about what are the effects of some of these breaches. I mean, if if we lose a credit card number, somebody goes on a shopping spree in a mall, and the credit card company takes the hit, and we shut down it, shut it down, and we get a new credit card, a new number in the mail. But somebody starts using your health identity. Medical identity theft has much broader, deeper, longer-lasting ramifications. What are some of the, uh, I mean, you hear like services like LifeLock or, or you know, that's a very popular one out there. I think the CEO put his social security number out there to be hacked, and I think somebody did hack them. But um, what are some of the measures that uh, a business owner or even a consumer could put up there that would help that level of... Uh, defense up for themselves outside of the policy procedures but once your information's already out on the dark web let's say you're one of the those that were exposed in any of the breaches that have happened in the past and i feel like all of us have been exposed with as many breaches and as much of our data at least from a consumer standpoint would you have any any insights on that or what what could be done to to help set up some firewalls yourself Right. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the key thing there is to is to be vigilant. And one of the ways we can be vigilant is by signing up for various sorts of uh, uh, alerts and 
and and and locks and and, and limits uh, so that you can be uh, you can restrict the ability of somebody to apply for new credit in your name, for example. Like a credit report can't be released unless you personally okay it each time if you put that uh, credit lock or whatever they call it in place. So there are things that ultimately make your life more complicated and less convenient, but they protect you in some way. So there are some tools out there like that through the credit agencies, although it's, you know, we sometimes get frustrated and think, well, it's the, it's the, uh, you know, fox uh, guarding the, 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 the hen house or whatever you want to call it. Um, why, why should I trust these guys to, to do anything at this point? But sure. uh, at the moment, that's all we have. And there are the other agencies that weren't hacked this time around who are offering this service as well. Very interesting. Hey, David, if you had one piece of parting advice for our listening audience, what would that be? What would that be? Uh, well, to, <laughs> to quote the, uh, the old desk sergeant from the Hill Street Blues program, uh, be careful out there. It's, uh, it's a wild and woolly and dangerous world that we've created. And as a result, there's a lot of exposures that we're all uh, subject to. And we just need to be aware of it. Sort of being conscious of the problems is the first step towards solving or at least uh, um, um, minimizing some of these problems. Great advice. Uh, what is the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? I am online as healthblog, H-E-A-L-T-H-B-L-A-W-G. That's the name of my blog. That's also my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm also at uh, harlowgroup.net. That's my uh, law firm website. And for the healthcare crowd, I am uh, providing a, a HIPAA tools uh, toolkit. You can find me for that at hipaatools.com. Perfect. Neonoise Nation, we hope you enjoyed the conversation today with David. We will be sure to include all of those links in our show notes, which will be available at neongoldfish.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, this is Justin Cannon David signing off. Neonoise Nation, we will see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Neon Noise Podcast. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please subscribe, share with a friend, or write a review. We want to cover the topics you want to hear. If you have an idea for a topic you'd like Justin and Ken to cover, connect with us on Twitter at Neon Goldfish or through our website at neongoldfish.com.